May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, and our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In television and in movies, there's often a scene. A man and a woman are standing close to one another. They're dangerously close to one another. We know as the viewer that they're not married. And they're kind of close, face to face, or, or in an embrace, or some other seemingly intimate situation. And, um, and we know what's going to happen. The spouse of the one of them is going to walk in. And sure enough, it happens. And, and the spouse comes in and, and looks, and, and we know the line. We know what he or she is going to say. We could even lean over the person. Watch what he, honey. It's not what it looks like, right? This is the line. It's not. Things are not as they appear to be. We see it so often. It's so you're just kind of used to it. Like I say, we can we could mouth the line for them, honey. It's not what it looks like. I think it works best in in cinema because we, the viewers, know. It's actually not what it looks like. I mean, things aren't that way. Of course, she or he would probably say the same, same thing if, in fact, things were exactly what they look like, right? Honey, it's not what it looks like. Okay, Howard, well, tell me, because it looks like you are kissing Marcy. Oh, well, in that case, yes, it's exactly what it looks like, you know? It never happens in film. It might happen in real life. There's something internally, though, as we watch it in movies or in film or whatever, that gets us conflicted. We feel it inside. Even if it's misunderstanding or misconstruing events, we can feel it. We can feel the pressure of a triangle or whatever. It's the bind that makes a story. You need conflict in order to have a tale to tell. You, know? you need this sort of um, drama. Even if there's no actual drama there, just the portending of it gives us a story to tell. Mark's gospel is about to take a sharp turn. Chapter 13, Mark goes into a very, very kind of dark chapter, and it, it takes a very, very sharp turn. Jesus exits the temple, and if you were closely reading Mark's gospel, you would see that he never returns to it. There are echoes of the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, where God's spirit leaves the temple never to return. It's difficult, I think, for me to express in words, I just am inarticulate on this, the, the significance that the temple in Jerusalem had for first century Jews. Well, for Jews leading up to the first century, from the time that it was built in Solomon and, and about the 9th or 10th century B.C., until the, the, the beginning of the first century, A.D., that this temple in Jerusalem was central, it was core to, the, to their identity as a people and as, as a people of faith. We think, well, we have important buildings. Christians have important buildings. We have, we have Westminster Abbey. We have St. Paul's. We have, um, we have St. Peter's in Rome. We, we have important buildings. We do... But we do not have a singular important building. For, for Jews, this was where heaven and earth intersected. It was the only place where heaven and earth intersected. And to this very day, on the spot where that temple used to stand, there are Jews who stand there 24 hours a day. All that's left is one of the outer court walls and just a part of it. 
And they stand there today, 24 hours a day, praying that that building would be rebuilt on that spot. It's a bit complicated in the fact that there are two mosques that now sit on that spot where that building once stood. But there they stand day after day. I've been to the spot. I myself have prayed, not as they did, but I prayed um, for God's people and for you in particular. Still, the temple was central to Jewish identity. And Jesus has gone to Jerusalem because it's Passover, and this is what Jews are supposed to do. Go to Passover. Go, rather, to the temple for Passover. And so here he is in Jerusalem. Um, I think if we were looking closely at this text again, we might notice a strange juxtaposition. In chapter 12, from last week, as I read the end of chapter 12, there's a story of Jesus who sees this widow who puts two half pennies into the offering. And he is clearly impressed by this gift. This woman who gave such a little amount in terms of money, but she gave all that she had. Jesus is impressed. And then did you notice what happened as they exited the temple? The very next sentence, or very next passage, you have Jesus and his disciples exiting the temple. And his disciples are impressed. One of them says, look at this magnificent building. Look at these beautiful stones with which it is built. On the one hand, you have Jesus impressed by a widow in her small offering. On the other hand, you have disciples who are impressed with a magnificent edifice. It's such a strange juxtaposition that if you read quickly, you probably would miss it. But here it is. I'm convinced that the disciples are completely deaf to Jesus' call to suffer and die. That he's going to Jerusalem not to, um, to become uh, the next crowned king in the way that they would expect. He's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. They think kingdom of God and they think political reality. Just like we would think when we would hear terms like kingdom or nation. We think in terms of politics, in terms of, of nationality. And for the Jews, they had this nationality, right? They had, they had history of the good old days of David and Solomon when the borders were expanded, where the country had great wealth, when the people were ruled by the by Torah, the law of Moses, where they had armies and, and they had you know, all, the, all the trappings of nationality. I think the disciples hear Jesus say, kingdom of God, and they envision themselves as secretaries of state and treasury. Interior, if they had such a thing. And they, they want to be in these offices of power. And they go to Jerusalem, and they see this magnificent building, and what do they think? One day, this beautiful building will be associated with us. This circle of friends of Jesus, he'll be king, and this will be sort of our center place of authority and power. And oh, how impressive we will be to the world and Jesus looks at them and has this word for them. I'm sorry, fellas. It's not going to be like that at all. Do you see this big building? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. It's going to be destroyed. That had to be shocking. They had to say, no way. That's, no, that can't be. Because that can only mean one thing. War. That temple that they, had, that they were looking at that day was a rebuilt temple. It had been destroyed before. 
This was temple number two that was standing. Temple number one had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And now temple number two is going to be destroyed? It could only mean one thing, war. The Romans are going to destroy it. In fact, that's exactly what happens. In the year 70 AD, the Romans destroy the city of Jerusalem and they level the temple. Not one stone stands upon another. Um, I was in Jerusalem, as you know, last year. And I went to uh, this uh, little restaurant um, and I was sitting outside in this little corridor having a sandwich and this fellow, an Armenian fellow um, Christian, is talking to me. He owns this little restaurant and he shows me this, this big pillar that's in the ground. I mean, this is like in a back alley. And there's this big pillar in the ground, this big kind of like stone pillar that's circular. And he says, you see this? I said, yeah. He says, this is what the Romans stuck in here to say, on this year we destroyed this city. It had been there for 2,000 years. And that's what Jesus is telling them. This is going to happen. And so his disciples naturally get him off to the side later and say, um, look, could we have a little bit of a insight as to when this is going to happen and what it's kind of going to look like? And Jesus says these three things. First of all, watch yourself. Be careful. Beware. Many are going to come in my name. So beware. There are going to be false messiahs. Guess what? There were 11 false messiahs between the end of Jesus' life and 70 AD. 11. The last one was named Simon Bar Kokhba, and a prominent rabbi in Jerusalem called him the Messiah. Israel's Messiah. It happened just as Jesus had foretold. Eleven of them. And nation will rise against nation, and there will be war. Huh, we knew it. War. It's coming. Not one stone will be left upon another. I think somewhere in the disciples' mind, as Jesus goes through this, they're saying to themselves, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. This isn't the way things are supposed to happen. We have this plotted out. We've got this thing, you know, we know how this program is supposed to work. And you clearly have failed in your homework because none of this is the way it's supposed to happen. And that's sort of the way it is in our own lives too, isn't it? We've kind of got things figured out. We know what it's going to look like when everything is going the way it's supposed to. And it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't at all. It seems like things are all wrong. It seems things are in the right places the way they ought to be. There's chaos where there ought to be order. And where is God and why isn't he showing up and taking care of these things? Sometimes it's loneliness. Someone feeling isolated and alone. As if no one really cares or can be bothered or gives a little bit of time but not enough. There's a sense of, of you know, uh, an emptiness in life. And where is God? Or illness. Struggling through difficult days with illness and not knowing why. You, you read on, in magazines and see on television that people who find these miracle cures and, and one day they're sick and the next day they're out playing touch football and... Um, you know, they took this pill and uh, they're hang gliding in the Bahamas. And that's not right because that's not you. And, and sometimes there's money problems. You can't seem to make things work out the way they ought to. And then you look on in, in a newspaper and you see somebody won a billion dollars. A billion with a B dollars for a one dollar lottery ticket or whatever. And you think, no, that's not right. 
where there's just a lack of um, friendship or whatever else it might be. And, and maybe I haven't hit on the thing for you. And you're like, yeah, but I have this thing. And if you knew about mine, you would see that if God is going to straighten things out, he's got to straighten this thing out. Sometimes hardship is not a sign that God has left you or advocated. Or in ancient Near East or ancient Israel, that destruction of the temple doesn't mean that God has given up or lost control. Rather, it's the very thing that proves that God is in control. Eight times in the 13th chapter, Jesus cautions his friends. See that no one misleads you, verse 5. Verse 9 of chapter 13, be on your guard. Chapter 13, verse 11, do not be anxious. Chapter 13, verse 23, take heed. Chapter 13, verse 28, now learn. 33, verse 33, take heed, be on alert. Verse 37, be on the alert. Which weather prognosticator would you rather have? The one who tells you in the morning it's going to be sunny and 77 and you walk out the door and it's 48 and raining. Or the one who tells you the truth and says, take an umbrella with you, you're going to need to need it. Don't misunderstand the signs of life. Difficulty and hardship are not signs that God has left us. Sometimes they are signs that God is at work. Hear the message. Be alert. Be ready. Keep me ready. Lord, remind me that the signs of difficulty and hardship point to this one reality. We are not home yet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.